Hey listeners, the episode you're about to hear was recorded in late May with the initial intent to release it shortly thereafter. In the time since, a truly important refocus of cultural and societal matters encouraged us to hold off for a few, because we felt the significance of the movement and the moment demanded no distraction and that we take the time to listen. In light of this past weekend's pride marches in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement that led to record numbers coming out to march and protest in our cities, we offer the episode now not only because it focuses on matters of pride, but also the importance of coming together as a community to help amplify one another's voices. Also, in that same spirit, we have included in the description of this episode links to a number of Black-led LGBTQIA organizations and resources, as well as links for organizations providing aid to Black trans individuals. If you like what you hear today, or just want to support the cause, please consider donating to one, or even a few, of these fine organizations. And please, continue to raise your voice. Black Lives Matter. Happy Pride. Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. Somehow, someway, we have made it to 100 episodes. I don't know how this happened from the deep, dark recesses of Glendale, California on the very first day when I recorded with Jeffrey Reddick, creator of Final Destination, to now. Uh, You know, I've traveled through different studios, through different production companies, from studio to home, the world has melted down, and uh, here we are, and I, I can't even believe it. It's, a, it's, it's a, a big party, and I can't even believe that we made it this far. And before we even, you know, continue, first and foremost, I would like to bring back to the air a phenomenal filmmaker, writer, composer, and so much more. You know her as the longtime producer of Dead for Filth and the artist behind the mighty Sister High design. Please welcome Drew Phillips. Hello. I'm going to toss in a little champagne cork audio piece here. Pop. <laughs> that's, that's the stocks audio I put in. Uh, Drew, can you believe 100 episodes? I genuinely can't, honestly. It feels like I mean, episode 10. <laughs> I know. And, well, 100 canonical episodes, because there's always that uh, internet nerd that's like, well, actually, you've done more, but, you know, we, this is the actual 100th episode, not counting holiday specials and live shows and and uh, all the all the Michigas in between. Um, and it's been crazy. Like, I just think back about, uh, you know, Ver- when Veronica Cartwright was on, she talked about dicks. Oh, my or, God, that was happening. Uh, when I had that one narrow window having Jan Gonzalez on the show because he was in from France for like a day and we were switching <laughs> studios and they were building, you know, paneling around his head because it was the only time that we could record. And it's just wild to, to be here um, years later and know that this is, is continued. Yeah, it's been a lot of different lives, but I'm happy that it's still alive. Me too, me too. And with that in mind, I mean, really today... Is, is something that is worth celebrating. And uh, we're doing something today that is, is a little nuts, but I think that uh, it was time. I think it was time to, to pull this together and make this happen. So I'm just gonna, gonna jump into it. Uh, you know, as you know, the, de- the goal of Dead for Filth has always been about celebrating and preserving the history of the intersection of queer identity and horror. 
It's always been about the power of community. And over the course of this series, I've hosted an array of filmmakers, writers, performers, drag artists, punk rockers, and beyond, all committed to sharing their stories and helping us understand our part of a bigger whole. For our 100th episode, I decided to want to bring together a group of other kindred spirits who have been working in the space and helping raise the banner in the name of all things queer horror. Instead of shining the spotlight on one voice this week, I wanted to make this party be about voices. What we're about to do, to my knowledge, doesn't happen all that often in the podcast space. Probably because it's a little crazy. But we're a crazy show. As such, I am joined today by hosts and representatives of some of LGBTQIA horror's most celebrated podcasts to transform our hundredth into a queer horror symposium. So, without further ado, let me tell you who is here today and proudly say, Queer Avengers Assemble. From Attack of the Queer Wolf, please welcome Nay Bever and Brennan Klein. Hey. Hi. <laughs> From Friday the 13th, please welcome Andrew Huff and Maddie Zaradich. Hello. Oh my gosh. From Gay Lords of Darkness, please welcome Stacy Ponder and Anthony Hudson, otherwise known as Carla Rossi. Ooh, shiver me timbers. <laughs> From popular website Gaily Dreadful and co-host of Scarred for Life podcast, please welcome Terry Messner. Hey. And from Horror Queers, please welcome Trace Thurman and Joe Lipset. Hey y'all! Oh. oh my gosh, these are there's a lot of people here. It's a it's a party, and a lot of people who I'm really excited to talk to. Uh, and a, a few of you have done the show before. A few of you have not. But historically, I tend to ask my listeners the same first my my, my guests the same first question, uh, which is why horror. But that's impossible to do with this many voices all at once. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is go around and show by show ask you a modified version of that and say, why a horror podcast? And I'm going to start with the team from Attack of the Queer Wolf. Why a horror podcast? Because, we, well, we need it in every medium. So I, if we all like to watch riveting and exciting and disgusting things on a screen, we also want to listen to that. <laughs> I don't know, I do. Yeah, and the, the thing is, as, as you know, diverse as the horror genre can be it can be so many different things um it can also be a podcast but also the podcasting as a medium kind of captures what i love about being a fan of something is the you know fun conversation walking home from the movie kind of breaking it down seeing what your opinions are and yeah it's just it's that vibrancy of that like you know drive home is you know totally worth having in every space <laughs> i can agree with that friday the 13th why a horror podcast um i think we started this thing as kind of a outlet to be creative as adults because i think we sometimes lose that in our adult lives and the natural thing that we always would talk about when we get drunk usually is the the real life horror and how it compares to horror movies and we would just talk about those and get angry at each other and we were like well i think that we should record this so that's kind of how we came to be maddie yeah um what, what's funny is that we get angry at each other less now i think after doing a podcast as well which isn't bad um, i think the queer people are called in the world to confront real life horror in ways that other communities aren't um and uh, we're not alone in that i don't think so either but uh, I think that, you know, what, what we love to do in particular on Friday the 13th is to explore that with, with our listeners and with, with our community. 
and to discover, you know, like maybe the reasons why we love horror movies so much is because that's where we get to be superheroes. That's where we get to, you know, deal with the world. It's where we get to, you know, sort of walk through the horrors that we see every day. And unfortunately, queer people have their own um, their own set of horrors that we have to fight through. So it's been a lot of fun to to, to do a podcast with the queer community uh, centered around horror. Um, yeah, yeah, that's why a horror podcast. I mean, I, I can get behind that too. Uh, Gay Lords of Darkness, why a horror podcast? I like podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Stacy. Thank you. There's that Gay Lords of Darkness energy. <laughs> I, I, I agree with Stacy, and I would add to that we needed more reason to hate ourselves. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, I think uh, we're. Our approach to a queer horror <laughs> podcast is also kind of along the lines of also being a women in horror podcast. We uh, are two angry feminists, and this is a place to make our soapbox. Yeah, and if people want to listen, I mean, that's great. <laughs> but mostly we're just speaking into the air. Um, <laughs> you know, after listening to other people here, it's like, uh, I wish I had something that sort of expansive to say about it but it was literally just a thing to do and it's grown into more than that as we've gone on um but in the same sense when i started my website it's just like something to do and i probably shouldn't admit that in public but you know here we are so i mean i i think some of the greatest pop culture defining moments have begun with something to do from from nothing comes something, so that is that is as good a reason as any, I think. And now it's one of my favorite things to do, if not my favorite. Yeah, same. Terry, Gaily Dreadful, Scarred for Life. Why a horror pod? <laughs> well, um, I'm actually glad you said that, Stacy, because uh, I wanted to talk to people in the community, and that's kind of why I started it, because. Um, I love learning about people and uh, getting people on the show to talk about the movie that scarred them always opens up like many different avenues of discussion. And so it just I want to get to know people. And that's kind of why I'm happy that this is all happening, because I just can't. I'm looking at all the talent here and it's just it's amazing. And horror queers. Why a horror podcast? Um, Y'all are also eloquent. I feel so bad, like ending it with this. But <laughs> but no, honestly, it's it's one of the only subjects that I'm passionate enough about to like spend this much time of my life on for little to no monetary return. Uh, and <laughs> I just um, no, it's uh, it you know I, I wrote for Bloody Disgusting for like five years, and I still write for them occasionally. But um, th I wasn't getting enough of um, like the input from my from the readers as much as I wanted to. And so when Joe suggested that we do a podcast, I was like, cool, that's a different way to like, re like reach uh, like new people and that's kind of like why i keep coming back to it other than you know joe's lovely voice yeah and i think from my perspective one of the things that really attracted me was the opportunity to connect with people at a distance like i really enjoyed reading trace's writing and we had the opportunity to write together but you know like brennan said it's not the same as the conversation uh like 
you know, Andrew said, it's the kind of thing where you get drunk with friends and you just want to have a chat about it. But at the end of the day, that's not something I can do with Trace. But then we thought, well, if we're going to be talking about things, why not put it onto a podcast? And then we can also reach each other. And that's one of the weirdest things. Like, I've never met most of you even virtually, and yet I feel so connected with you because I've heard your voices over the years. And I think that's the power of podcasting that other mediums don't have the capacity to emulate. Each of you in some capacity spoke about that queer need to connect with horror, but also more broadly, the, the power of community. And in a lot of these answers, it, I, I'm hearing this thread of, of connection and the growth and like finding each other, like through the airwaves, you find your people. And what does that mean? And how does that change your perspective? And this is a general question. And uh, I'll, as people want to weigh in, I'll, I'll just call on you to, to speak. But talk to me a little bit about what you've learned from your time doing this. And has your relationship with horror changed at all because of this journey? And if so, how? Um. If it, I've learned anything, um, I'm, I'm a fairly stubborn person. Uh, I was raised to think I was always right all the time. And if there's, any, <laughs> if there's anything I've learned uh, from this, it's that I'm not. And it's helped me open up to other people's experiences and opinions. And I think that, you know, there's a... Uh, we, we are... Oh, God, this, I don't know if this is going to sound like... Um, like cocky or something but it's like we're like kind of i don't want to say tastemakers but like we we're 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 leaders in this this field um whether we think so or not we are because we have listeners and followers that like that, that listen to us and also tell us about their experiences and their opinions and their lives be it from again your listeners or your co-hosts apostrophe parentheses s uh and it, I don't know, it just helped me, open me up to other people's like, opinions and to learn that I'm not always right. And sometimes it's okay to disagree with someone and debate things and say, you know what, I don't agree, but I understand where you're coming from. Brennan. Um, well, I kind of want to piggyback off that thing that you were saying about, you know, being exposed to other perspectives. Obviously, that's part of why you want to meet a bunch of people and talk to a bunch of different people. But something that, you know putting your voice out into the world does is that it brings other people's voices to you whether or not you knew that they were there or intended for that to be the case um like we've heard from a lot of listeners who are you know come from a lot of different places and are in a lot of different circumstances in their lives and uh, as of i mean i i'm only speaking for my experience but i live in a place in a part of the world where i feel more or less comfortable being who i am that's a good you know 80 to 90 percent of my time here um but i have also learned that for a lot of people out in the world just hearing someone exist and just hearing someone be queer can be a powerful thing and you don't have to be you know saying anything hugely epically important you just have to exist and that's inspiring to someone and i you know that's people i i don't want to say like i'm inspiring yada yada but like I am inspired by hearing other voices like this, hearing other experiences and, you know, hearing people have the freedom to be themselves. And I think that, you know, all of our shows are giving that to someone that we didn't even know existed before this. And I think that's a really powerful thing. Uh, Stacy. Just to 
continue on that thread, I think that what you're talking about is the importance of visibility, even if it's just a podcast and not visible. Audibility. Um, audibility <laughs> is important. Representation is important. And, you know, there are still people who are the only gay in the village, you know, and to listen to a show week after week after week and podcasts sort of foster a relationship between the podcasters and the listeners that for a listener, it feels like sitting with your friends and talking about a movie or talking about a topic. And I think if some people are, you know, don't have anyone else in their real life that can fulfill that role. And so every week or every month or whatever, they've got a community in their earbuds, you know? Right. So. Terry, you had wanted to say something? Yeah, um, it kind of goes with, with what both Tracy, or Stacy, gosh, my gosh, I'm, <laughs> only one scotch in. I'm sorry, Stacy. <laughs> Stacy and, and, Bre <laughs> and Brennan said is that, uh, I mean, not to blow smoke up your ass, Michael, but your podcast was where I started to realize that maybe there was a place for me in the horror community listening to that. And I, I, my, I mean, my podcast, it's not an explicitly queer podcast, but I am gay and my, my co-host, she's bi. So, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where I, I think that visibility and showing that there is a community here that you can find your people and that, yeah, please come here. You might not like some of the people in the horror community, but you will have a community here to talk to, I think is, is really important, which is um, also kind of why I write my website. I want to make sure that there's a place for people that can have that voice and say, hey, I can be in this community. Um, so yeah, just going back to the visibility aspect of it, I think it's it's hugely important. Andrew, did you want to say something? Yeah, just to kind of build off of that community piece is that I don't think that when we started this, we realized kind of how big this community was and how powerful it was. Um, I've seen a lot of things get done because of a lot of the people on this screen. And then also just from a technical standpoint, I had no idea what I was doing at the beginning. So um, mics, what we're recording into, how we're editing, that all came with very long hours <laughs> and a lot of learning. Nay. Yeah, you know, I was not expecting, um, well, when we started our podcast, I had just left um, a job at a suicide hotline. Um, and so what I learned at that job was that validation saves lives, validating people's feelings, validating people's desires, like no matter how basic or how complex validation a little bit goes a long way. Um, and so like a lot of you have just mentioned, there are people who are the only gay in the village. Um, there's like all kinds of people who feel very isolated from community. And I just hadn't thought that we were gonna be able to be a help in that kind of way to, uh, for people to feel like, you know, I had someone message me that it's like they get in their truck somewhere in rural Australia, I can't remember what they said, and all of a sudden they have friends around them and they feel they feel something that they aren't able to feel anywhere else. And I had no idea anything like that would happen, although it totally makes sense because we need that kind of representation. We need to hear and see people who feel the things that we feel. Um, so yeah, I agree with everybody. <laughs> yeah. Maddie. 
I don't think um, Andrew or I realized when we started doing this, like Andrew said, number one, how big it was going to be. And like everyone else is saying um, how wonderful it is to hear from your listeners about, you know, feel that, feeling like you have friends around you, feeling like you have community around you when maybe you don't all the time. I don't think Andrew or I, I don't mean to speak for you here, Andrew, but I'm sure you'll agree. Um, I don't think we realized how much we needed it either, to be honest. You know, really how important this is going to be to us to hear from people and to get that same community back and to have that enrich our lives. I mean, when we started this, we thought we would do like five episodes and like a couple of our friends would listen and that would be a fun experiment. And, you know, like two years later and, you know, many, many hours of recording and, and insanity, um, you know, we're still doing it because we really love it. And and part of that is a selfish need for us too, I think. I, I, I wonder if it's the same for everyone else around around the screen right now too. Um, it's it's an immensely important part of of my life, and I just love 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 connecting with people in the way that we get to. It's 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 honestly it's 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 an honor to do it. Well, and one of the things that was spoken to a lot in in each of these answers, uh, even when Trace started us off, he talked about that that community trailblazing, the idea that you know. We get to carve a path in the community, and then each of you, somewhat to a different degree, spoke to what that meant. Finding those people, having that visibility, knowing that that visibility meant something to a listener, that visibility in some of the other people here means something to you. And uh, I just want to talk to you all a little bit about people who paved the way, because I think we are sort of in a moment right now where queer horror is a big talking point. But that was not always the case. And, uh, you know, I've been around for a while, and I remember when there were very few places for queer horror in, in the discussion of, of uh, the genre. Uh, Stacy here had was one of, in my mind, the first voices that released, you know, carved a path on the internet to discuss queer issues. And there were people like Sean Abley, who was doing Gay the Dead in Fangoria, uh, in Camp Blood uh, and and uh, Jeffrey McCran over at Faggoty Ass Horror, but those were considered niche for a while. A lot of for for the gatekeepers, and now there are a lot more lights in the dark to look to. So I'm kind of curious for each of you, who did you look to? Who helped pave the way for you to have this discussion, if at all, Joe? <laughs> I can start us off. Um, yeah, I mean, I will definitely give credit to Stacy. For me, it was Stacy, and it was also Camp Blood. Before I even knew that there were people behind them, I knew the sites. And um, the other piece for me was when I was going through university, I had the ability to uh, get exposure to a couple of queer horror academics. So a big part of my... I guess horror queer education was reading the work of uh, Harry M. Benshaw, or sorry, Benshoff, and uh, reading Monsters in the Closet and being like, oh wow, there were queer horror films dating all the way back to the 20s and 30s. Because I think one of the struggles that I often encounter, and I'm not sure the rest of you would agree with me, but people specifically when we're talking about a movie, they'll often say, oh, you know, I just really wish that you would do this movie. And it's like from the 90s. And I, 
you know, sometimes that's great. I think we have a connection to different types of periods and that's fantastic. But there are so many other times where I just want to say, you know what, there were movies that existed long before this and they were queer AF. And you owe it to yourself to seek those films out and to get that education because you know, we may be having a moment now, but there were people who were doing the hard work and the labor and putting in that emotional resilience long before we were here. So we are just, you know, the current people doing that work and we need to acknowledge the people who did that work before us. Stacy, I, I want to ask you- Anthony had raised, Anthony raised the hand. I oh, saw it. Oh, Anthony? <laughs> I saw well, it. I, well, I was going to continue to jump on the Stacy Ponder train. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, no, no jump on Stacy. But beyond Stacy Ponder, uh, who I was reading Stacy's blog, you know, when I was like nineteen, um, and I, I, I <laughs> thank you, Stacy. And <laughs> it was actually a place where I began to see people talking about queerness and horror in the same space. And then another person that really inspired me uh, to not just um, find more of my own room in this in this niche, but but to begin to make work alongside those terms like like i do with the queer horror film series was peaches christ peaches was a huge deal for me in seeing um the combination of queerness drag and horror all in one place and seeing her film all about evil uh really brought that home to the point that i wanted to launch a horror film series um celebrating queerness as a horror hostess and then after doing that work for like four or five years stacy reached out to me about doing a podcast with her it was an amazing experience Andrew. Yeah, so um, just to kind of build off some of the inspirations that kind of introduced me to having other voices in the conversation, because I think for a long time, it was just like straight white guys bitching over microphones, you know, (laughs) and I think a lot of the times that I would occasionally hear like a woman, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. I'm going to listen to all of this. And even going all the way back to like people like Elvira, who like they were the only one in the game. Um, that was kind of kind of what led me to not only horror, but queer horror, I guess. So you, you tapped into something that I think is interesting because I think a lot of the journey that many of us have felt was just getting a place at the table to, to break into that market that was so cornered by straight white guys. But now that there is this larger queer horror discussion, I do wonder, and this is a question for anyone that's not a cis, white, gay man in the conversation. Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) We're down to two. We're down to two. No, we're down to three. (laughs) What more do we need to do? Because I think that, you know, we may sometimes perceive that the door has been kicked down, but I don't think that is entirely true. Of course not. (laughs) Of course not. Get angry. I mean, just looking at this grid, correct? You know, yeah. this yeah. is what it is, and it's not as if there were a bunch of women who weren't invited. I hope you know what I mean. It's like women are still the minority in all of this, and I think the onus then becomes on the people who look like the rest of you guys, uh, you know, the cis white men, to elevate other voices to kind of sometimes it's okay to, you know, pump the brakes a little bit and lift up someone else. If we're all in the queer horror community, um, who's the loudest voice in the room? Who's always gonna be the loudest voice in the room? 
Um, and I think to just be conscious of that and to do what we can to, you know, all of us to help each other, but especially to lift up the voices who maybe are not as well represented. I mean, I specifically very, very much can't wait for the day until we have a uniquely trans horror podcast. I love that we have as many queer horror podcasts as we do, but every trans girl that I know loves horror movies so much, devours them, and yet there's no trans horror podcasts. And I know trans girls that read so many queer horror movies so very, very, very differently than gay men do. Sleepaway Camp and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde and even Cruising get, like, completely different reads um, in a way that's, like, equally valid, in some cases a little bit more so. Um, and those are voices that I barely get to hear other than, like, in Discord chats or, like, face-to-face with some people that I know if I had been, like, little 12-year-old egg, I would have loved to absolutely hear about why Angela is the goddamn greatest. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, and I think, oh, Nay, go ahead. Uh, I just, you know, I was not expecting that question. Uh, obviously, it was on my mind seeing the, 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 the Twitter message <laughs> for this group. Sure. And who was on it. Um, and I feel like sometimes I get so tired of showing up to spaces like that that I don't do it. Um, because I'm like, I don't want to be the only black person there. Or like, I don't want to have to put in the work to correct like all the fat phobia around me or like, you know, any of the things. Um, and then sometimes I'm like, well, you, you do have to show up if you want to blaze a trail <laughs> like that we've already talked about. Um, and I don't think that like having, you know, like one light skinned black person in a group of all white people or people who are white passing is like, you know, a huge stretch of diversity. But um, I feel like people, I am, I'm grateful for the opportunities though, because how I get them is because white men give them to me. <laughs> I mean, that's not, not that I'm not qualified to speak on something or that I'm not intelligent or that I'm not sought out for other reasons. But I feel like some of my biggest breaks were because a white dude was finally like, you know what, why don't, why don't you give it a try? <laughs> and not that he necessarily, um, I mean, I specifically think of Michael, like Michael, I'm on the podcast because uh, Michael liked me when he met me and was like, hey, you know, we need someone who's not a white guy and you're not. Um, and so I don't want, um, people to think that you shouldn't reach out to people who are different than you to come on board for things because you absolutely should. But what must be done, what really, really must be done is that when you are inviting people into those spaces that they're, it's safe to even be there. Because if I know that, all right, I'm about to walk in to this symposium, it's gonna be like lots of people who ha have, don't have many things in common with me if I'm making assumptions, um, which are probably, which that's probably not even correct, um, but to have like, you know, societal differences in the identities that we take part in. I don't know, like I can't, it, there's not always a guarantee that if I show up in that space, that there's also gonna be space for me to be me and not have to just like bite my tongue at the table so that I can stay there. And 
that's a whole other kind of horror. Well, I think it's interesting that you you began by saying you weren't expecting that question. And I think probably the reason is it's it's a hard question because it, it, it puts the people who ask it on the spot and no one, you know, ever wants to, to make themselves look uncomfortable. But I think that it is our duty in this space that we occupy to ask these questions and to put ourselves on the chopping block in the way that if we're going to go on the air and talk about queer representation and the and the plight of, of queer representation and the fight that we had, we have to remember that the queer community is not a monolith and every single letter in that acronym stands for a different experience that is not our own always. And if we are not taking the time to have that consideration, then are we really doing our jobs or practicing what we're preaching? You know, just as we are, are, are fighting for some visibility, there are people who have not even been seen yet in the way that they want to. And so it's like, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm down to ask the hard question, even if it's awkward for me sometimes, because if it's awkward for me, it's, it's probably more awkward for the person that I have to ask the question to, because it's a lived experience. I don't know. Is that fair to say or? Yes. Yeah, it's like definitely fair. I think it's like if someone's like, God, it's so hard to like learn all of these letters and this acronym. And you're like, you know, it's hard being one of the letters in the acronym and having to listen to people <laughs> or, like you shit like that. Or, or maybe, maybe when people say, boy, there just shouldn't be so many letters in that acronym. <clears throat> maybe you should just. Maybe you should just. Uh, you're, you're bringing I don't know, us there now. <laughs> be be, a, be fucking Americans or something like what the fuck, man? Like, shut up. <laughs> well, no, I mean, but honestly, like, even like with like like with all the, the acronym, like, I mean, like, you know, we go by horror queers. I literally got in a fucking comment argument today on Bloody Disgusting because a fellow, well, I'm assuming a fellow member of the queer community was commenting saying that they don't like that we use the word queer and then started to use like oh well you might you might as well start using these racial slurs because this isn't okay and i'm like i i get i get where you're coming from like i i do understand i know the word queer hasn't been co-opted by every member of the community it's just what we've chosen to do but like the anger the anger that i was getting from these replies i was like i just it i want to i want us to be together you know we're a community but we're not always and there is a lot of infighting within the queer community over something as basic as what do we call ourselves? And it's it's frustrating sometimes because it, it's not always a winning battle, you know? And I, I I was born in 1989. I didn't grow up in the time where it was even... I mean, I, I grew up in, you know, the suburbs of Texas. I, that was one thing, but I'm also a cishet... Cishet, oh my God. A, a cis white <laughs> Wait a gay <laughs> Well, we have an intruder in our midst, everybody. I'm coming out, you guys. <laughs> it's a scoop. <laughs> I know, I know. No, but I mean, like, it, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I, 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 I do want us to all get along, but like, there's still things that like even us as a community don't agree on. And I, I want, I want us to get along, but I'm also sort of tired of like being quiet about certain things, and sure. you know, not not to bring up the giant Twitter explosion that happened last week, but like when something happens. I'm going to call you out on it. I'm going to get loud about it. I'm going to do what I have to do, not just for me, but for who I also look at as my people, because I think that's part of what I'm called to do in this life and in this world beyond horror, beyond anything. Like 
I'm, I'm here to like help stick up for people when they need that. And I'm doing that for myself at the same time. Um, so like, you know, everyone can have an opinion, I guess, but like an opinion is like, I like the color red. I like the exorcist. I don't like the exorcist. I think that if you don't like the exorcist, you're an idiot, but that's beyond the point. <laughs> it's, the, the, the point is like, you can have an opinion about like if you like something, but if you're just fucking wrong, then you're fucking wrong. Yeah. And that's the way that it is. And you deserve to be called out for that. Cause it's not an opinion. That's being an asshole. I think that's problematically like, too, there's, I think there's a hesitancy maybe from certain members of the queer community that, you know, we have achieved legitimacy because we can now marry who we want and, you know, sodomy is outlawed in so many states and all these other things. And you're just like, yeah, but there's still a lot of people who aren't free to be themselves and being queer is political and sometimes it requires activism and Sometimes that means saying uncomfortable things. Sometimes that means having uncomfortable exchanges. I am so happy to get my ass handed to me from someone who is willing to educate me or to tell me, you know what, you made a really stupid comment and now I'm going to put you in your place. I'm happy to have that opportunity because that means that we have a community who is not going to rest on our laurels. But I'm concerned that there's too many people who are just happy to be part of a melting pot and say, you know what, I don't want to rattle the chains. I want to make some money and I want to fit in. And I just, I'm, I don't think we're there. Like, we're not there. No, we have to be willing to be wrong. Terry, you wanted to weigh in? Um, well, we just keep coming back to this, and it was something that um, I was thinking about um, back when Nay was talking about someone driving in Australia in the outback listening to the show, is that I'm I'm that, that person. I live in the center of the country. I live in Nebraska. I don't – I have – it has taken me so long to feel comfortable being who, my, who I am because of that fact that – that that is something that that I look to when I listen to your podcast or listen to Michael's podcast or the horror queers. It's a community that I don't necessarily see on a on a typical basis because I'm I'm not in any way, shape, or form the uh, the majority where I live. I mean, it's it's Nebraska has a horrible history of of dealing with that kind of aspect of it. Um, so there, there's that, and then also. Um, Joe, just what you were talking about, about just being happy that, you know, sodomy is illegal in a lot of places and people are able to get married. That's, that's not, that's not, an, that's not enough. And there's definitely more that we need to do, uh, to do that. I was just going to ask. So, I mean, Terry, you being in Nebraska, um, cause I, I do think that there's sometimes a thing with us where we're in a bubble because like I may live in Texas, but I live in Austin, which is a, the most liberal place in Texas. Who among us lives in a non-bubble besides Terry? So like a non-liberal like a non-liberal city. city of whatever you're in, like not LA, not New York, not Chicago, like some, some like you know, or or did you grow up in a place that wasn't like that and you like moved somewhere where it was a bubble? I don't know, like because like I, I don't know. I mean, I I, I I I sometimes feel like I get too comfortable in my bubble. Like I'm like, oh, it's well, like this everywhere. But it's not. And I, I sometimes catch myself forgetting that fact. Well, there's a long history of queer people escaping to places like where all of us are. Like, I I know not all of us are from the places where we're living because we couldn't live in the places where we grew up. Whew. I was going to say, nay, that's like your backstory, right? <laughs> yeah, I definitely grew up somewhere rural and feel like I escaped that. For sure. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, same. I mean, I only had 50 people in my graduating class, so that just shows you how small. I had four people in, I was one of four in my class. Wow. I mean, that, that puts Western Pennsylvania into some perspective right there. Oh, I just really quick wanted to say that also, as far as I know, all of us live in North America. And, you know, there are people like us all across the world who are living completely different experiences that we obviously can't speak to, but are completely different in a lot of different ways. Um, also, to track back like 20 minutes ago, um, the uh, what Drew was talking about, like, you know, creating a trans horror podcast or whatever. If if that conversation lit a fire under your ass, you can email me because I want to hear that and I can help someone make that um you can find me on twitter at it's raining brands <laughs> i think it's starting to happen like I, i'm seeing people like i uh i know that scriptophobics just debuted a j horror podcast and one of the co-hosts is trans so mm. we're getting there but yeah i mean i think the big thing is like there's a there's a lot of room for amplification of many different voices and i think particularly in the podcasting medium like it it's not the cheapest way to do it but it's actually not as cost prohibitive as people might think like you need a good mic and you need somewhere to set it up and after that you can kind of take it off well and queer horror podcasts have grown exponentially in the past two years you know like joe and i started the horror queers article series and in in 2018 and then the year that we did that before we started the podcast there were like 12 queer horror podcasts that popped up we like i think in the past month we have seen three or four more start following us on twitter but and this might is a dig at us too. They're also it's also like you know it's two white gay men doing a podcast together. <laughs> yeah, we're taking up a lot of fucking space. So, uh, ladies and people of color and trans, like, hop on the mics and make your voices heard. Well, and I think during this conversation, we've been talking about how we deal with community discord and the fact that maybe we are not always on the same page. Uh, it's having the tough conversation and it's also making space. I think that's the most important thing is to know that we need to make space. Uh, just because someone tells you you're wrong doesn't mean you need to bite back. Maybe you're actually fucking wrong and let them share their experience. Uh, and I think that this is really great to have this discussion and, and forward the, the knowledge that we all need to constantly be working to be better and to do better. Um, and kind of looping that into what we have been talking about, some of the things we argue about sometimes are problematic faves. Uh, Drew touched upon this a little bit with discussion of Sleepaway Camp. And this is a good uh, thing. I asked listeners out into in the uh, interweb to share questions uh, that they had about queer horror. And um, I had someone ask, uh, Twitter user Robin the Discount May Queen asked, "How do we fight back against the image of the murderous, deranged trans woman that permeated the public subconscious following Sleepaway Camp?" Drew, I want you to take this one first, <laughs> and then we can, and then we can talk about problematic faves as a larger whole. Well, first of all, the concept of the murderous trans woman's been around since the '30s, since Alfred Hitchcock's murder, and then we had Psycho, and then we had Dress to Kill. And then, you know, you name it, it like it still happens. Like you could say Sounds of the Lambs, that second X-Files movie, like it still happens. Ooh, it's thing. gross and I hate it. Um, but at the same time, like Angela's a pretty good example of like Angela's the killer. Angela's trans. We know that because we've all seen the ending of that movie. 
Um, however, everyone that Angela kills, like, kind of fucking deserves it. So, and it's kind of the same thing with Dr. Jekyll and Sister Heidi, which I mentioned. Like, she kills a lot of people, but she does it so that she can stay a woman. Like, <laughs> these have value, and so there's a way of kind of re-angling the lens on these trans killer figures and making them more sympathetic because we have had nightmare cis het men and women in media and in cinema for the entire time. Like, give me a trans joker, someone who can just be an absolute asshole, shithead, monster, and people still love them. That is who I want to see on the screen. Because that's true diversity. Until we can have actual, like, villains that are like, oh, yeah, like, she's a monster and a cannibal, and she ate that person's flesh, but we're going to gender her properly this entire movie, and we're not going to exploit her because of that, and go ahead. That's what I want to see. But I also need to see trans protagonists, and I need to see, like, something other than a very comical presentation of a trans woman or a story that's just about her coming out or her transitioning or this or that. And I need to see trans men, and I need to see non-binary people, and I need to see them as characters why can't the detective who gets killed halfway through the movie because they're snooping a little too close be trans just like it's not that hard there's trans actors everywhere in the world we want parts because we're like as egotistical as everyone else like and we look hotter um well and and not just relating to the trans topic, but the, the topic of problematic faves in general. The idea that we now exist in a space where we're looking at a lot of these movies that we had for so long, and that in some ways maybe were our only connection to queer identity because that was all we were given. And now that the discussion has, has furthered or our awareness has changed, there's, there is sort of a, a larger call to move away from them, but I think what's really interesting about horror fans is is we know better. We know that you can't just X something out. You need to talk about it. You need to hold on. When Carla uh, Anthony was on the show last week, we discussed Mary Martin and Peter Pan and how there was a very problematic representation of indigenous people there. And uh, Anthony, I'll let you speak to this, but you don't want to see that go away. You want people to confront it. Yeah, we need to remember these things to keep ourselves accountable. Um, when I'm not a horror podcaster, I'm a visual artist and a performance artist. Uh, and my work looking for Tiger Lily is entirely about Mary Martin's Peter Pan and about being a mixed race person and about growing up watching white people with blonde hair and blue eyes play the Peter Pan natives, like the Neverland natives. Uh, and that kind of messed me up as a kid. Um, but I love it. I still love it. Uh, just like I loved it when I was a kid and I was stupid and I was innocent and I didn't see what was wrong with the depiction except seeing a lighter skinned native like myself. Um, but I think especially when I do this work and I take it around uh, like to colleges and I see students that are rallying to have statues taken down or racist murals taken down. I'm like, well, let's reconsider destroying them altogether and maybe keeping them as signposts of where we've been. I mean, like something that I always go back to is thinking about Germany. If you drive around Germany, you're going to see plaques and signs saying exactly what happened. And those are there for a reason. It's so people don't forget uh, to destroy depictions that are negative um, is an act of whitewashing, to be honest. 
Now, I have, a, I have a listener question that I think ties into this topic, uh, but our associates over at Not Your Final Girl podcast say, we recently recorded an episode on queer slashers and included Nightmare on Elm Street 2 in that conversation. Screenwriter David Chaskin has admitted to intentionally capitalizing on homophobic paranoia of the time at the expense of the lead actor, Mark Patton. Considering all of that now, for anyone who watched this film as a young queer person, did it have any sort of impact on you, positive or negative? Do you want us to admit how old we are, is what you're asking. <laughs> I mean, as one of the older people in the room, uh, it's fine by me. But, uh... Here, I will say, I came across the movie the first time when I was in high school. Um, and I had already, you know, kind of read articles on, like, cracked.com the top five most unintentionally gay horror movies whatever so i knew what i was in for and i was just excited about it like i had never really seen a movie that was really that gay in any way i hadn't seen you know brokeback mountain yet or whatever was big in the 2000s yeah, that, was um, that would count that's 05 <laughs> yeah um but i was just like oh there's some like weird gay shit going on it's the only gay shit I've ever seen. I'm ready for it. Let's see what's going on. And I had no context for how to analyze it. I don't think it ruined me or anything. But, you know, it, you get excited to see anything that feels like your experience. And as you get older, you learn that that's not a blanket thing. Um, it You know, you're not ever going to be fully represented by one thing. But you do learn that there are better things that represent you that you find eventually. Andrew. Um, I think I probably saw that movie God, when I was probably eight or nine years old, to be totally honest. And I don't think I had identified myself yet in what was going on with me. But I was really happy that Grady was in his little green shorts. Mm. So <laughs> that's kind of like where it was at. Um, and then I think in analyzing the movie now that I'm like, I don't want to say I'm a fully formed person, but I've fully accepted my, my, my gayness and, to, and kind of learn more through that. Now, going back on it, I'm like, how did I miss this? <laughs> Terry. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm also, I'm an old, I'm an old guy. I'm 39. Uh, I was like maybe eight or nine, I think, when I saw it as well. Um, but like, at the time, I didn't, obviously, I didn't realize what was happening in the movie, but it made me feel weird. And so, because of that, and because of where I lived, and I was thinking, this is, I mean, when the coach is getting whipped in the in the locker room and everything, there, it, it, there's all these feelings. It's like, I I don't know how to feel about this. And so I kind of, I did push away from it because at the time it was like, this is, this is getting frowned upon at the time that this was happening. It was in the late 80s when this is, when I was probably seeing this movie for the first time. And so I, it was probably my least watched uh Nightmare on Elm Street film. I was that's my that was my franchise growing up. That was like the one that I I stuck to, um, and now I, I I do kind of think it. I still think it's problematic because I do think that it kind of fits in with the whole um, heteronormative ending that happens with a lot of those subtext movies from the eighties with like Fright Night and Lost Boys, and you know it 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 always comes back to uh, the kiss has saved it. He is now okay and. Heteronormati heteronormativity can reign. So, um, I mean, like, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those weird movies that I, I still, when I was a kid, was, fr was freaked out by it. Now I'm kind of, it, I, I like it. I understand it. I really love the documentary. But, um, 
it's it's weird you know uh from a younger quote-unquote perspective i'm 31 it's not like it's that big of an age gap but sure baby um no i i did see it um you know i think i saw it uncut for the (laughs) for the first time in high school um but amc used to always air those like nightmare marathons halloween marathons and i remember getting an erection during the the tidy whitey scene and i but but i sorry like I, I, I wasn't like a sexual youth. Like I, I, my mom was raised very Catholic. I was raised very Catholic. I didn't think about sex. I always thought that I was straight because I liked hanging out and talking to girls. Um, I never, I never brought a sexual component to it because I didn't know what sex was until I was like twelve years old. Um, and so when I started getting erections, I didn't know what. I thought there was something wrong with me, to be honest. <laughs> Um, but like, but but then like when I found out what sex was, like, I was the kid that was like you know in JC Penney in the fucking brief aisle, like looking at the bulges, masturbating in my mind. <laughs> but no, <laughs> but I remember like that, like in Nightmare Two, when you see Jesse like in his tidy whities, and I was like, oh, there's something happening, and I, I was I started to associate it with sex, but I, I never really got the gayness of it um, until until I was in college probably, and I was watching it with friends, and I was like. Like, Brennan, I, I was, like, seeing those fucking Cracked articles that was like, oh, it's this and, like, Jeepers Creepers 2. And I, it's, I, I don't know. Like, I, I never, I feel bad. I feel like a bad gay because I never really connected it. Um, but there was something going on in my body that I didn't understand. And movies like, scenes like that in movies like Nightmare on Elm Street 2 helped me, like, I understood them much later in life. Like, looking back, saying, oh... That's what that was. So, even if it had kind of a problematic social message that we didn't understand till later. Well, I mean, and shameless plug, but like we just covered Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, uh, which was like what three or four years before. Oh, hi, Maddie and Andrew. <laughs> but, but, like, but they just came like three years before Nightmare Two, and that's like right before the AIDS crisis hit, and it like doesn't. It handles its gay characters well, but then yes, like Terry said, you have that heteronormative ending where it's like, oh, the girl, the, the heterosexual love saves the day because it's right in the midst of the AIDS crisis. It well, in- interestingly enough, one of our listener questions comes from filmmaker Parker Brennan, and he asks if we Parker. can have pos- positive representation of queer characters in 20th century films, i.e., like, can you speak to any positive representations? And he says, I recently watched Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker and was stunned to see Coach Tom survive. So rare for a queer character who's also not a villain to survive. Are there any other examples that leap out to you uh, as connoisseurs of fright? I think Jennifer and Jennifer's body is the most positive queer representation ever. She just eats men, you know. Um, But then she still gets killed. And uh, also, first of all, sorry, yeah. First of all, hi Parker. We stand Parker. Yeah, I um, love Parker. Yeah, we but do. also there, there's a movie from the '90s that I like to plant the flag for, flag for a lot. It's a German movie called Killer Condom. Yes. Um, <laughs> and the lead is this kind of like hard-boiled uh, New York uh, detective character, and he has a love story with this kind of twinky rent boy, and it is probably the most tender love story I've ever seen. And it's shocking that it came from a movie about a condom, you know, destroying people's genitals. But and it's, it's German. Beautiful. Yes, it's German. Trauma. 
Troma acquired it. They didn't make oh, it. Oh, right. right, right. <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, like, even Susan Sarandon or um, Catherine Deneuve in The Hunger. Like, I mean, I oh, know yeah. like I know that Catherine Deneuve dies. Spoiler. Oh, kind of. I mean, she, she's alive in that box, but, like, you know, she's dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh. But I actually think that's a, a really positive portrayal of queerness. And that, I mean, you have Catherine Deneuve as, like, the uh, the predator in the film, but then her victim is and maybe you'll have a different read of this actually so i apologize but um yeah you have this susan sarandon as a possibly bisexual maybe lesbian queer uh woman who fucking like wins it all in the end of the movie (laughs) yeah Yeah, she does yeah she does and while everyone's gathering their thoughts on those characters i want to say really quick about that like you know kind of dashed off heteronormative uh true love's kiss magical happy ending for queer characters like obviously that's a really poisonous idea and that's something that we need to steer away from but i also think that comes from a long history of the ways that subversive art was allowed to exist um historically in film like in terms of like the Hayes Code period, like when you're making these biblical epics about the heathens, you know, like having orgies and doing all these like things that are indulging themselves as long as they're destroyed by the end. Like you can have a monster as long as he's destroyed by the end. Or like I, Lucy and I Love Lucy gets to, you know, try and have a career as long as she returns to being a wife and a, you know, mother at the end of the episode. And obviously, you know, the endings are trying to maintain this like really rigid stasis. But if you snip that off, you get to have a lot of fun and that's why those things existed in the first place. And I think there is a power to the middle part of it. Um, the ending is what's tacked on by, you know, society at large, but that middle part is where the people get to live. And I think that's a really cool, it's a way of sneaking it in there in the times that that wasn't really allowed. I don't disagree with you, Brennan. I think and, and I think this is why it becomes important to put things into history and into context, because there was absolutely a need to do that kind of storytelling once upon a time. But I, for one, am far more with Drew on this, where I'm just like, you know what? It would be great to see some oh, momentum yeah, where we could now say, it's 20 fucking 20. Can we please just have some queer characters who have a love interest and they all survive at the end? Or maybe they're like emotionally complex and they're not just defined by their sexual orientation. Like, wouldn't that be fascinating? Yeah, I'm saying, I'm not saying, I, I oh, no, never I want to see honest. that ending again. <laughs> but it allowed us to have something in the past, which yes. I don't think we could have had otherwise because of everything being terrible always. Yeah, agreed. Anthony, did well, I, I, I think that, that also that, that kind of heteronormative ending that gets tacked on, we can critique that, but we also need to be conscious of how we live out that structure in our own communities, yeah. too, where that heteronormative happy ending getting tacked on, that's, that's, uh, that's gay marriage, right? That's, that's, <laughs> um, that's assimilation is what it is. I mean, if you look back when it was about gay liberation pre-HIV AIDS, it was about all of us stepping outside of the system and celebrating each other versus coming into the system and playing by its rule book. Um, So I think we should also be conscious of that. And furthermore, I just want to give a shout out to David from Bride of Chucky, because when I was 12 years old, I mean, granted, granted, David gets exploded by a truck. But it's a really good, he gets a good death. That's also important. It's one you rewind over and over, especially if you were me. But 
watching a boy in a movie, granted from a queer maker, thank you, Don Mancini, but watching a boy talk about his problems with another boy, um, talking about that with uh, uh, Grey's Anatomy, like Kevin Heigl. <laughs> Thank you, gays. Um, it's life changing, <laughs> right? Like that was so formative for me. I'm really interested in what you said about sort of that conditioning, the assimilation, the uh, kind of drive towards the heteronormative that we even kind of place upon ourselves, which actually leads to another question uh, from a very dear and special listener to me, uh, Dr. Anita Varati, otherwise known as my mom. Uh, Aww. She sent this question and would like to know, what are some of the messages you received while growing up about the societal roles and expectations of men and women? And how have those messages influenced your work or art? Thinking as a parent and the anxiety that we purposefully or inadvertently create when raising our LGBTQ children, I would like to know. Wow. Kudos to your mom, first of all. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. Mom's dropping the heavy questions here. Yeah, well, when I was like, uh, if you want to weigh in, she, she did not come to fuck around. So. <laughs> um, I think growing up, you know, I had stepdads and my stepdads were always those kind of guys that kind of if you did anything feminine whatsoever, it was you're why are you being a sissy? Why are you being like that? And so I think for me, anyways, that stifled a lot of my creativity early on and through high school because I was so afraid of depicting that. And I think that that was something that really stuck with me for a long time. It took a really long time for me to, you know, kind of come with one of my with myself and you know realize that yes, I do have feminine qualities. It's it's part of me, and kind of accepting that part. So I think just sometimes I think parents, and I think that it's gotten a lot better, but especially in the '80s and '90s, we were so worried about fitting into the status quo that I think that we might have stifled a lot of the creativity and voices early on. Um, so your listeners won't be able to see this, but so I, I always thought that my mom and dad were like really, really good parents. I, I always like liked how I was raised to treat everyone equally, be fair to everyone. Um, but I'll never forget when my mom, I, uh, I walked like this one day, uh, and for listeners, it's, uh, like, a my arms to my side, but my wrist is, my wrist is a little limp. Um, and my mom... It's Alexis from Schitt's Creek. There you yeah. go. <laughs> uh, my mom slapped my hand one day. Perfect. And when I was in middle school, and I, she didn't know at the time, but I was already being bullied for being gay, even though at the time I didn't know I was gay. But um, she slapped my hand away in the mall and said, don't walk like that. Gay men walk like that. And uh, I, I remember just being the first time that, like, I... I didn't feel loved by my parents, uh, but I think it motivated me. Uh, honestly, I think it motivated me. Um, and when I, and this is before I realized I was gay, but when I finally did realize I was gay around the age of like 14-ish, um, and I found like a different community in theater in high school, and it's when I started moving away from my parents. Like, you know, they, they, when I came out to them, they sent me to therapy, blah, 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 and when the therapist was like, he's fine, they were like, we don't agree. Um, and that's when I started moving away from my family, uh, emotionally, I think. And so I think it was, um, I felt like I always had a good sense of like, you know, role models for my parents growing up. But as I came into my own, I realized that wasn't the case. First of all, Trace, I bet you were so cute as a little kid at the mall with your hand (laughs) propped up like that. I I think I was. (laughs) Of course. 
Don't you look at like pictures of yourself younger, like whatever you got made fun of for, like I had short hair and I thought that's why people called me a boy. But now I look at pictures and I'm like, oh, you look like a boy. <laughs> like, you like you did. Um, but as a kid, my mom would call me Herman Munster because I was so strong. And <laughs> like if I would kick a ball or like I would break things by accident from being like stronger than I thought. And I had I held a lot of shame around not just like being a fat kid, but being a really tall kid and like looking older than all of my peers and getting treated like I was older. And just like the expectation of fat women to be very feminine. Um, and I just was like a rough and tumble kind of girl, like dirty. And I had to play with the boys because I always hurt the girls. And I think whatever kind of like gender messages we got as a kid like however it doesn't align for us is like really stifling in all in all kinds of ways i feel like i'm still now like i'm gonna be 35 um this summer and i am still untangling all of this shit around gender and everything else for that matter but a huge thing is gender and like messages we've received about how we're supposed to look and how we're supposed to act and how we're supposed to talk and how we're supposed to interact with people. Um, and so I can't even imagine my mom asking a question, <laughs> like the, like the question that your mom asked, um, like I want, now I want to know her. Um, but yeah, I've, I've talked long enough, but. Right. You lose your train of thought, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Natty, and then Carla. For me, I, I'm, I'm 37. When, when my parents had me, they were 46 years old. I'm the last of nine children. Um, and so it was a very broad range from 37 all the way to my brother who's 63. And so my mom and dad were really old school. I, we, we grew up Catholic too. And I remember when I was a kid, because I, I was born in 82 and I was coming of age during the AIDS crisis you know, as, a, as, a, as a child. And um, I remember my mom telling me lots of things, but telling me that I would get AIDS if I sat on a toilet seat mm -hmm. and if I didn't wipe the toilet seat off enough. So like every toilet that I ever went to, because I was scared to use urinals, so I always use a toilet. And I, I wiped that motherfucker down as much as I could. And that was just sort of like the start of like the fear that was ingrained in me of doing something outside of our family and the way that our family did things. Um, and so, yeah, that, that without a doubt stifled me. It made me terrified of sex, made me terrified of fantasies, made me terrified of, mm -hmm. of uh, you know, I, I grew up a fat kid too. And, you know, I, I thought, well, great, you know, this is, you know, two strikes now, you know what I mean? Like, oh, and also we're poor, so there's three. You know, there, 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 there's a lot to it that just really made me very terrified in life. That, you know, I've, I've just always thought if I ever do have kids, like that is shit. <laughs> I will just be glad to never have to do to them mm -hmm. ever to make sure that their lives can coast on at a rate that I just always felt like mine didn't. Um, and that takes a lot of therapy to get through. <laughs> Amen to that. A Anthony, you had something to say? Yeah, you know, uh, I think a lot of us grew up with trauma. I think it's safe to say for pretty much any queer person, right? But I'm really grateful for the adversity to some extent because it taught me to think for myself. Like if I didn't grow up um, mixed race and queer, gay, uh, gender confused, a fat kid. Like if I didn't grow up poor, all of these things, 
um, I might be a much less open-minded, thoughtful, even compassionate person. And if you look at queer people and how we're all living through this pandemic right now, like staying at home and putting on a mask isn't hard for us because we're used to accommodating our existence to other people, to mainstream normative society, right? And granted, I grew up in a place where while falling into all those different boxes or not following into falling into any box, I am afforded privilege to like, like as a light skinned person and as a male presenting person in terms of how people look at me. And when I'm walking down the street, I'm granted privilege to be able to kind of exist unbothered at the same time, though I see myself and how I don't fit into these systems. Um, and so I think that becomes a call to then uh, speak up for everyone that doesn't have that ability right and it doesn't have that privilege and i think that's to an extent why we do what we do or why we should be doing what we're doing i have never felt grateful for adversity (laughs) (laughs) but i hear you in that i really like who i am fine like finally um and hopefully i always do and i don't know that i would be who i am without you know one of those boxes we do or do not fall into like you said um but you use a real one because i i have i have never felt grateful for any kind of adversity ever can i ask you something may yeah would you change your past like something that happened in your past or are you like because i'm always the mindset like i've had like shit happen to me but I'm always like, a, I wouldn't change it, though, because if, if, if something changed, like I wouldn't be who I am now. I wouldn't have the mindset that I have now. And I like who I am now. And I, while I don't want to relive anything <laughs> from my past, <laughs> particularly, like, I'm happy that it happened in, in a weird, fucking, twisted, sadistic way. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like... I, I like who I am in terms of like my social identities. Um, I mean, it would be like, okay to not be poor. Probably that'd be fine, but that'd be great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. I like, there's things like, I'm like, did I, do I need six figures of college debt? Like probably not. Like maybe I would do that differently. Or like maybe if I could like go back and never be a survival, a survivor of sexual assault or like, you know, like, sure. Maybe there's things that I'm like, I, I could do without that, but I always come back to knowing exactly who I am in this moment and where I am and being like, you know what, like in spite of those things, I like who I am. And so I feel gratitude for that, but I also know that I had to and have to fight like hell for that. Mm-hmm. And it's not me that I necessarily want to change, but I wish I could ma- wave a wand and like change even my inner community around me to accommodate who I am better. Um, so no, I don't know that I would change anything. Um, but you know, catch me on the right day, I might. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Terry, you had a thought? Yeah, I, I mean, I would. I would like to change because I, I mean, my, I think my existence is a little different than a lot of people. I didn't come out till I was 30. And that was the first time I ever kissed a guy was when I was 30. So there were like, I, I wish that it, there's so many things I wish I could have gone back to to change so that I could have the issues that I went through in my thirties a lot younger. Um, so on, on that regard, yeah, there are things that I wish were different when I, when I was growing up, sort of like kind of what Nay saying, like, I, I get that it's made me who I am today, but maybe it could have made me who I am today 10 years earlier. <laughs> 
You know, I hear that so much, Terry. Like, I came out what felt like really late, too. I was 25. And um, mm -hmm. I'm like, I feel so grateful for, like, approaching the 10-year mark because I feel distanced from, like, being new in that way. But you know what? Like, I when I hear a story, like, some of y'all's stories about knowing you were queer at a really young age, I get jealous because I wish I had been tuned into myself in that way or, or that. I didn't live in such like a religious environment and maybe I would have like been able to acknowledge that in myself earlier. Um, because I Same. hear you like, you don't want to fall in love for the first, like your first queer relationship, you're like 30 and you're like, God damn it, am I in love for the first time at 30 and acting all wild and crazy? Um, maybe I should have done this when I was 14. Like, I don't know. Right. But you know what? It's There's sort of like you're going back to for like... us late bloomers, you know, like, <laughs> You yeah. can be late to the party, but it's never too late. And there's a lot of value in our inexperiences like that. I will always be obsessed with people that knew they were queer when they were like three. Like, I'm going to want to know everything about that because I think that that is so special and precious. But, you know, we're here too and we figured it out. Um, and it, maybe this is when it was safe for us to come out. And there is zero shame in that. Like, you do what you have to do. And I hope that everyone feels like there's at some point a time when it feels safe for them to be authentic and genuine. Well, and I think that's kind of what's so important about this conversation and, and us having our different websites or different podcasts or different outreach that maybe it'll make things a little easier for the next generation, that they can see we're thriving, we're succeeding, we have a voice in the community, and it's okay. Well, and you all are superheroes to me, and I know you have many things that you need to go do. So we have two more listener questions, and I will let you go off into the night. But it, uh, this next question really speaks to what we were just discussing, the idea of society and culture and how our journeys are shaped by that for better or worse. Uh, Ghastly Grinning's own Ryan Larson asks, what can non-queer people do to be better allies for the LGBTQ community? You know, a, a small question. Drew? They can shut up. They can shut up. They can step aside. <laughs> and they can relinquish a platform. I think they can That listen. is doing more than they can believe. Saying nothing is saying so much, goddammit. Anyone else want to? They can give us money immediately. Just send queer <laughs> people money. Just, just I, do it. I, I just think they can they can listen. Like on That's better. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean no, <laughs> trust me, I, I want some fucking money too. If you, you want to give me a million dollars for being like gay, like by all means, fucking do it. Like I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> I'll fall on that fucking cross. <laughs> but no, honestly, it, it it's it falls into the non-queers and the queers, but, like, if you are... If someone says what you're saying is wrong or what you're saying is not okay, just listen. And I think it falls on both sides, though. You know, you have to be willing to listen, but you also have to be willing to approach the... Like, the offender as... Gently? Maybe it's the wrong word, but, like, just be nice about it. Like, like have a conversation. Be willing to have a conversation. That, that, that's what I'll say. Be willing to have a conversation and talk about it. Don't get defensive. Don't get offensive. Just talk about it. Yeah. And, oh, sorry. No, no, please. Please go. Okay. Um, I would say uh, the thing that immediately came to mind for me is just don't, don't decide what spaces to invite us to. I mean, 
you may maybe don't invite us to a space that would be dangerous to us. Um, but the thing <laughs> is, I can't tell you how many times I've been invited onto a podcast to talk about the Lost Boys or Elm Street 2 or, you know, oh, it's the gay shit. Let's get the gay guy. Let's do this. Um, I want to go on a podcast and talk about the house and sorority row. I want to talk about literally anything other than the gay shit sometimes because that's my job. Yep. <laughs> um, like, th- it's... Or, I mean, uh, look... Or I want to talk about the gay shit that's important to me. Because, as I mentioned, Elm Street 2 was fun to watch and it was really cool, but it didn't mean anything to me. Yeah, it's I like want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, like, I want to talk about Killer Condom. I want to talk about Remington and the Curse of the Zombadings, which is from the Philippines, and you should watch it. It's wild. It's fucking great. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, d- if you want, you know, to uplift the voice of a gay person, ask them what they want to talk about perhaps don't decide what they should talk about necessarily yeah and also separate your intent from your impact entirely and remember that it doesn't fucking matter what your intent was and just listen like like many people have said just fucking listen like if if a trans person tells you something is transphobic it just is that's it mm-hmm. you can feel horrible you can feel awful you probably you know you definitely should but gather that up don't like put the burden of like making you feel better on the the queer person or the trans person you know go do that work on your own yeah yeah and this is interesting and i'd be i'd be curious to hear how other people feel because i've i've heard it when i've heard it from people in uh sorry I've heard it from people of color. I've heard it from uh, from trans people that one of the things that really frustrates them is the responsibility to educate. And I think this is it's it's such a weird line, right? Because sometimes it's tempting to be like, I'm going to tell you why you straight ally have said something that offends me and I'm going to try to like help to change your mind or to educate you so you don't do this again. And then sometimes I think like Nay, you said earlier, it's really fucking exhausting to have to always be that person. So I think one of the things that I would say as, you know, the, the cis gay white guy is it, it's sometimes easier to, to just listen, but also to be mindful of the fact that sometimes we don't want to have to explain things to you. And that goes for anybody who finds themselves marginalized or invited to be the token member of your whatever. So just bear that in mind, straight allies. Sometimes we don't want to have to tell you why you're wrong. Is someone being attacked by something? Is something happening? I'm sorry. That's why my face was like that. Not like Joe, you're adorable i would never make that face while you're talking there's just like a shit ton of fireworks i'm sorry oh i, th- I thought you lived under ellie Kedward. <laughs> i was like what's happening nay is being attacked why the sun is like just setting here and people are like light it up right now no, I will say what's great, and listeners, I do just want to quickly paint this photo, uh, this picture for you. We are all on a video grid to have this symposium so we could make the ease of conversation better. And as the sound was happening, I was watching everybody in their square look off as if that something was coming through your house, which shows that we are all horror nerds, because... Even though I think we, we logically knew that it was happening on someone else's microphone, it was like, maybe, 
just maybe <laughs> this shit's coming for me next. I, I, so think, I, just I think it's a fun game, though, right? Like, let, let's have like a happy hour like every month, and like someone has like, so, someone is responsible for the noise, and then we have to figure out. It's like clue. We have to figure out who it is. <laughs> I think Stacy already said this is basically unfriended, like, the queer horror podcast <laughs> mm-hmm. edition. <Lord laughs> One of Barnes, us will be murdered by the end of this. Lori Barnes is shitting herself. Where's my blunder? On our computer screens. It's great. It, <laughs> and piggybacking off the question from ryan about what can allies do to help our community we've been speaking about this the entire time but i think it's a good sort of wrap up moral of the story question that comes to us from former dead for filth guest and filmmaker behind shutters upcoming queer horror documentary sam weinman he wants to know what can queer people do to be better allies to each other terry Support each other. Uh, I mean, you know, I know that there's like an importance with your own career and getting stuff out there for yourself. But if you're not supporting each other, then who is going to support each other? Um, Yeah. Trace. Be nice. Like, I'm a privileged white person from upper middle class Texas, and I don't know everything. And I know that, like, I, I will put an opinion out there, and no one likes to be told that they're wrong. I, I actually fully believe that most of the conflicts in the world come from people being so afraid of being told that they're wrong or being afraid of being seen as wrong that they just do everything in their power otherwise to make it not seem like they're wrong. So if if there's a member of the queer community that you're looking at who's wrong, quote-unquote, or maybe not as open as you think tell them politely <laughs> like I I, 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 I I don't I, yeah that's it that's it for me I'd, I'd say stand up for each other too you know support each other but also stand up for each other I think I think that's different fight for each other absolutely you know when there's something wrong being said you know when there's mm-hmm. something wrong being done and you know uh, just like every other time in your life when there was no one there for you that you need to be there for somebody else. Um, So I think that's really important. Yeah, and speaking to, like, obviously we've already discussed the kind of, like, overwhelming majority of, like, white cis people in this space. Um, First of all, that does grant you access to spaces that other people don't have access to. Um, You do need to make sure that those spaces do become safe for them. Like, it is that thing, like, if someone is saying something wrong, you can't, you, you do have to, you know, do the work and help people who aren't in the room and you know don't have the ability to be at that time and make it a room that they can enter um but also on the other hand the responsibility like you know as the more like mainstream side of like queer culture is when this is an adaptation of a different platitude but like when someone tells you who they are believe them don't say like oh, that's not your gender. Like, oh, that's not this. That doesn't make sense. Like, this isn't how that works. It, it is. People are who they say they are, who they're telling you they are, like what their pronouns are, who, what this is, what this is. You, you can't prescribe an identity to someone. Like, why would you not believe someone telling you who they are? Like, that's just your job. Well, before we head off, um, you know, we all do this on every show. Uh, I just want to say thank you. And I, I know that everybody here has something to say and i want my listeners if you're not listening to all of these folks already 
please go do so. So with that in mind, where can people find you? Attack of the Queer Wolf. Uh, Nay, do you want to start? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Black Cupcake. It's B-L-A-K-K Cupcake. Uh, um, you can find me on Twitter at It's Raining Brens. You can find me on Instagram at The Burning Clem. Um, you can find our show on Twitter and Instagram at Queer Wolf Pod. And also, like I said earlier, DM me if you want to make a podcast. I cannot really offer money, but I can offer a web platform, which is expensive. So you wouldn't have to pay for it. So <laughs> I hope I hope some podcasts come out of this talk. I want to, you know, next time we all get together, I want to hear that someone has launched a podcaster or three. Uh, I have room for about 98, I think. So, you know. Friday the 13th, where can people find you? Well, I do not have my own personal account because I have to do all the work for the podcast. So you can just find me at Friday 13. <laughs> um, Was that a dig? No, no, no. <laughs> no, Maddie, pick it up. I, no, I, I tried to find this fucker when y'all were guesting and I was like, where the fuck is his Twitter? <laughs> but so I'll let Maddie kind of promote his and then I'll promote the show. Yeah, sure. So you, you can find me on Twitter at Maddie underscore Zaddy, Z-A-D-D-Y. Um, you can find me on Instagram, the same thing, too. And uh, for the show, Andrew does run the Twitter account for show, and he does a great job at it, too. Um, that's at Frygate13 on Twitter. Find us on every podcast platform that's there. Look for us on Facebook. Website is Frygate13.com. Gay Lords of Darkness, where can people find you? Uh, we have a show, Instagram and Facebook. Both of those are Gaylords of Darkness. Show is on Twitter at Gaylords of D. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Final Girl, G-R-R-L, or my website, finalgirl.rocks. You can find me on uh, pretty much any social media platform at, at the Carla Rossi. That's my drag persona self, um, as well as my website, thecarlarossi.com. Terry, Gaily Dreadful, Scarred for Life. Where can people find you? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Gaily Dreadful. Um, you can find the podcast, uh, Scarred for Life, on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And we recently just launched an uh, Instagram that's Scarred for Life Podcast. And that's it. Horror Queers, where can people find you? No, me? Oh, fuck. Um, <clears throat> you can find us at Horror Queers on Twitter and Instagram, and we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group, and it's super fun. Um, personally, you can find me at Traced Thurman, that's my first name, last name with a D in the middle, um, on Instagram and Twitter. And I am at B Stole My Remote, and that's also on Twitter and Instagram. And because I get to go last, I'm also going to say that uh, it's been lots of fun to chat with all of you folks, but we are also part of a small group of queer podcasters. So I would also encourage you to seek out all the other ones as well, because there are now more than 20 of us out there. So uh, don't feel like you're limited in your options. But yes, I mean, people should take Brennan up on his offer because we can always use more. For sure. Drew, where can people find you? I am everywhere in the world. Um, Instagram and Twitter and the like as at Hyde Sister, as in Sister Hyde flipped back around. And then you can find my website, which is SisterHydeDesign.com if you want to commission me for hot, hot uh, horror art. And I don't think I've done this since the early days of the show, but does anyone have any final thoughts? Any 
things that they want to share with the world, some parting messages on queer horror, what you should eat during quarantine. Uh, anybody want a last minute weigh in before we go? Queer Avengers Unite. Queer Avengers Unite. This is not the end game. It's only the beginning. <laughs> Andrew. Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for inviting us all to participate. I kind of feel like, I don't know, we, we don't belong in this room a little bit, just like with all the people that I've seen um, and how much you guys all mean to me and a lot of the podcasts that I've listened to for uh, years. So just thanks a lot for inviting us. We really appreciate it. Well, as, as Joe said, it is a, a large community of so many voices. And if I could have everybody... Uh, I mean, it's hard enough, as you all know, to coordinate a conversation of one or two, let alone a dozen folks on one night. And the fact that any of you took time out of your evening to come sit here and weigh in on your life, on your journey, on your experience, and share that so that other people may also feel a little less alone, uh, that means the world to me. And I do, from the bottom of my heart, admire and respect and i'm a fan of all of you so thank you thank you so much for coming to the show today and for taking time and uh i just love you all thank you truly that's a lot thanks thank you thank you i'm michael Verratti. this has been dead for filth yours always in glam and gore good night good luck stay home Dead for Filth, the Renegade Edition, is a June Gloom production in association with Sister Hyde. Dead for Filth is created and hosted by Michael Verratti and produced by Drew Phillips.